Hello, and welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Kyle Wing from EPAM Continuum. In our line of work, we hear the term systems thinking a lot. Heck, we use it all the time ourselves. But what are we really talking about? By and large, we're speaking about thinking holistically to address problems, as opposed to focusing on one individual issue completely devoid of context. Systems thinking is about the collective, about shared responsibility, collaboration. This year has, well, we've all been living it. It's been a lot. One thing 2020 has done is further highlight social, political, cultural, economic, and environmental divides. It can often feel like the very fabric of society is fissuring. The existential threat of and continuously delayed action around climate change, a pandemic-induced battle around truth and science, a global reckoning around race and inclusion, and the rise of populism and threat to democracies around the world. Our guest today, Peter Senji, is here to help us recognize that these larger, complex issues require collaboration, the long-term prioritization of the collective over the immediate gratification of the individual. Senji is founding chair of the Society of Organizational Learning, a co-founder of the Academy for Systemic Change, and a professor at MIT's Sloan School of Management. Peter has been at the forefront of organizational learning for decades and is the author of several books, including his most widely recognized, The Fifth Discipline. This go around, we've got two brand new interviewers busting out their microphones. Rick Curtis is a senior director at EPAM Continuum, and Paul McCormick is a principal at EPAM. Listen as the three discuss the importance of the collective, the difficulty of pinning down human nature, and how we might be able to envision and create a new future. I mentioned the complexity of the of the modern world, and it feels that, that systems thinking and, and using the tools that systems thinking uh, provides feels more sort of vital, more essential than, than ever. And, and with that being the case, do you feel, I mean, the fifth discipline was a had a massive impact it was a huge success do you feel it's penetrated the business world and sort of management leadership philosophy to the extent that you anticipated well of course that's pretty much impossible to know I, uh, yeah. uh, it's i remember years ago talking to somebody who'd been very influential in the early days of writing about corporate culture and the importance of culture and how organizations work. And he had an interesting comment. He said, well, everybody uses the word now, but I'm not very convinced it's, it's more than superficial. And, and that kind of highlights one of the fundamental problems you always face with new ideas. You know, if they get too popular too quickly, that's actually not a good thing in a way, because it, it tends to foster a kind of casual treatment. You just say something, you know, it's like pixie dust. You know, if you say yeah, the right yeah. words, everything will change. Uh, you know, developing a real understanding of complexity is a lifelong journey. And I never expected uh, any of this work to have much really major impact, except over really probably a few generations. So, again, it's hard to make any kind of grounded or certainly authoritative assessment. But, you know, people, people are familiar with the term systems thinking. They use it a lot. That's great. Uh, at the at the best, I would say it represents a kind of aspirational understanding. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean it, it represents a lot of capacity yet. I mean, that ultimately can only be judged by actions and consequences. Yeah, hey, because you, you hear a lot about, and, and I've heard it from from many businesses that you know we we, we want to be a learning organization, right. or we or indeed we are a learning organization. But right. as you say, when when you sort of dig under the surface a little bit. 
a, a lot of some of the substance isn't there. Yeah, exactly. I, I think we, I mean we to your point around that kind of pixie dust and and a sort of just a nod to it rather than really spending the time to get under the hood and and really understand the complexity and what it would take to mm. to change and improve things. Mm. I mean, I think I think we're definitely seeing that for, for a lot of organisations, whether they're you know whether they're small or large, they they do seem to be either they're finding it very difficult to do it or they're struggling to find the the, the time or desire to do it right. to really take that step back and reflect and look at that big picture. Yeah. Um, I think it's, especially as, as there's this sort of maxim of move fast and break things is becoming prevalent. Um, I mean, do, do you think that is the case still? Um, well, again, we're speaking in broad generalities. So, you mm. know, there's kind of two ways to look at something like this. You might say you kind of look at averages, you know, these broad generalities is the business world changing. Or you kind of look for um, kind of lead sectors, lead organizations. You mm. know, is, is there any kind of critical mass of serious uptake? Uh, and, and that I would be much more kind of inclined to the latter rather than the former. Because I think, you know, think about it this way. Deep change never starts with a majority. You know, revolutions always start with small numbers. It, the real changes always start on the periphery of the mainstream. And then over long periods of time, gradually penetrate the mainstream. So you kind of look to the periphery. Uh, mm. And and that would be more kind of the way I would try to approach it. You know, is there anything like a critical mass of really good exemplars of organizations taking this seriously? Now, that kind of begs the question still of what does it mean to take it seriously? But mm. one, one indicator would be, and, and you guys undoubtedly have your own perspective on this, because it's not unrelated to the kind of work that any, any good consultancy does, which is that do people really have, one, time allocated to learn and develop new capacities? Two, do they have help? You know, we've often found in uh, organizations that make real headway, they really have some sort of fairly well-organized internal kind of helping systems. That could be internal consultants. You could be uh, uh, really encouraging various peer networks to develop where people who have made a few steps ahead can be helping others. Uh, do they have any kind of organized process of reflection? And study, you know, how did we deal with this situation two years ago versus now? That, that may sound radical, but I actually have seen a few companies that have, you know, I internal, you might call them internal research capabilities, mainly to track their own ways of handling different types of issues. You see this a bit in the, uh, in the software industry. I have a friend who's been a very successful serial entrepreneur in a particular niche, which is a really interesting one in software, since most software today is developed online, not surprisingly, even before the pandemic, it was developed yeah. online by very large collaborations of, of people all over the place who are kind of jointly uh, developing uh, new elements of software. It's very different than it used to be where they were kind of, you know, a back office operation that kind of created and then launched, here's your new software. Now they mm -hmm. find the complexity of the software environments is so great that nobody has knows enough. And so this basically, they call it uh, collaborative system design. So mm. their niche is they facilitate online collaborative system design. They've been very, very successful at it. And one of the things they do, they have, I think they may call the person a curator or maybe a librarian, but they basically have somebody who studies how different problems have been solved in the past 
and how they're solving them today. So that you might say a serious internal researcher, not just, you know, research in the abstract, but really how, how are we doing this? You know, whatever you might say is a recurring or generic set of issues. How are we doing it today versus yesterday? So these are the things you would look for, for serious uh, practitioners, you know, they take capacity building very seriously. They allocate time to it. They have help for it. And they have infrastructures for reflecting on how they're doing. I mean, all that represents serious investment. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned sort of software. And do you, do you see it as something that's that's where there's a more, more willingness to put in the, the time mm-hmm. and the investment that's needed in particular verticals? Or do you think it it's more about the mindset of the leaders in that organization. So it's, it's independent of the vertical, but it's, it, have they got the right yeah. approach to it? Are they thinking about it in the right way, irrespective of, of the sector they're working in? Well, that's leading you know, where there's any kind of organized, serious investment, like I was just trying to illustrate needed, then obviously you probably, in almost all cases, you're going to need some fairly serious senior level support because mm. you, you know, you're allocating funds for investment. Uh, if it can be done informally, of course, that's not as necessary. And in my experience is that, you know, where there's real progress, there's a mix of both. I mean, they're yeah. both needed. I mean, if, 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 the, if, if the senior level people are all really on board and really get it, really want to invest, but the people doing the work don't see it as relevant, don't see it as really helping them and don't have real motivation, then mm. it won't, won't make a really big difference. You need both. Do, do you, I mean, do you, to, the, to that point, do you think, the, the growth of you know data and I know big data another sort of commonly used term but the visibility of what what we can actually capture now not just about what our sort of customers and clients are doing but also understanding what employees are doing and how effective they might be at it do you think the the, the influx of data and the ability to make some of this more visible so people can actually see that this is really making a difference and this is really helping makes it easier to justify that investment or just does the sheer volume of of data coming out now actually make it almost harder to see um, what's effective or what needs to be done? Well, as, as your question kind of Mm. states, you know, it's pretty ambiguous. Mm. You know, the, uh, I've always been quite skeptical of the emphasis on big data for a couple of reasons. One is I think we have a, a really problematic bias towards technical problem solving versus more deep, you know, what, what some people have called adaptive problem solving. Mm. You know, where, you know, the, the fundamental difference is in the first situation, you really don't have to change, you just have to get more sophisticated at doing what you're already doing. That's technical problem solving versus no, yeah. the way we're going about this itself is a problem. <laughs> so in other words, I've got to change, we've got to change. That's, that's adaptive problem solving. I've always thought one of our big problems is we have a very strong bias towards the technical. Now that tends to predispose us to take all this data and say, well, let's just, you know, crank it into our existing algorithms, so to speak, Hmm. Um, as opposed to saying, no, no, our algorithms, which include us, are the problem. Yeah. Um, So I I think that's that's a deep issue. And it's always been one of the differentiating ones. Again, in the organizations that, in my experience, have made real progress, they have Hmm. really had an ability to balance being technically sophisticated. I mean, who's going to argue against technical <laughs> sophistication and yeah. recognizing that that really is only going to help us usually improve things incrementally. 
really significant changes, really seeing new market opportunities, really seeing new ways of thinking about our technology, seeing fundamentally new ideas, usually just doesn't come out of the data, so to speak. Another way to think of all of this, all Mm -hmm. data is about the past, period. Technically speaking, there are no exceptions. Obviously, we can project and extrapolate and Mm -hmm. analyze for the sake of projection, all kinds of different ways, but still fundamentally, (laughs) kind of it's a law of physics, right? What you measure is stuff you measure now based on what has happened up to now. Um, so it's never going to help you have deep insights if things are really changing. I mean, think about, you know, to me, this would be kind of an overarching principle of how to characterize our present age. We know we don't know a lot about the future, but we can be damn sure it's going to be quite different than the past. Quite different, not a little bit different, but quite different. Mm-hmm. Humans simply cannot keep living the way we live. We have a fundamentally unsustainable society on so many levels, whether you talk about ecologically or as more and more of us are becoming aware today, socially. Mm. You know, you just can't, it won't continue. You know, how it's going to change, whether it's going to get better or worse, obviously these are really big (laughs) questions, but it ain't going to just continue the way it is. You know, Mm. humans can't continue to use whatever different estimates, one and a half to two Earths. It just won't happen. We don't have one and a half or two Earths. We have one Earth. And the over kind of extension of our material footprint and material throughput on the planet today is a very fundamental problem. And, you know, again, you don't know exactly what's going to happen. I mean, the Mm. most likely scenario will be the rich will continue to get richer and the poor will continue to get poorer. You know, it's kind of a science fiction dystopia. There's been a lot of versions of this. If you really consider the extraordinary resource scarcity that already exists today, you know, think of all the people in the world who do not have access to reliable, clean drinking water. Uh, and you just project that in very conservative ways into the future. I think WHO now has, estimates that half the people in the world will live in water-stressed, over, over 50% will live in water-stressed regions by 2025. It's not a small problem. No. So, you know, the most likely scenario is, guess who will get the water? Well, the yeah. wealthy will get the water. And you're going to have an increasing large and problematic social equity gap. Um, obviously, the alternative that most of us would prefer is, no, we recognize that you know, we all have to use water sensibly. Obviously, it depends on where you live, and water's kind of a regional resource. It, it, it varies a lot, but just using this to illustrate that you know, the, the, the responsible stewarding of water resources, of topsoil, of the things that actually humans need, not the luxuries that we don't need, the stuff we really need, food, water, energy, the, the, the responsible stewarding of these critical needs um, is gonna, could lead us to see that no, the exploitation, the objectification, the, the really totally blind misuse of critical resources that are vital for everybody is a big problem. And, and that, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, it's, I mean, there are places in the world that are on serious pathways or can start to see serious pathways to really non-fossil fuel-based energy system on a large scale. I'm just, again, to illustrate. I always think you should start with the most fundamental needs, not the luxury items, the essential items, food, water, energy. Human beings have never been able to do without these forever, right? And there's maybe a few others like that. 
um, and then start saying, well, kind of, how do we understand the global food system? How do we understand the, the energy system? And where are we going with these things? So these are not small issues. So again, if you just start with the premise that there are going to be fundamental changes ahead and none of us can foresee them and the mm -hmm. information that will predict or help us understand those is not just in the past. No, these are leaps of imagination, not analysis, and obviously commitment and willpower. So you take all that into consideration and realize, oh yeah, all this big data stuff is interesting, but it potentially could be a huge distraction from the real world. Well, I, absolutely, I was, was going to say, I think you know, we sort of opened by talking about what perhaps businesses might be doing when it comes to thinking about these problems in a with a systems thinking mindset, but but actually with with those far bigger and more important challenges that are ahead of us um i mean are you seeing governments ngos are, are you seeing them do you think they need to adopt more of this way of understanding the the the, the interdependencies the the relationships between all of those those critical factors you've talked about yeah well it's also the collaboration between them you know so mm. just given the way that kind of you might say the institutional ecosystem in our modern societies has evolved, um, none of these critical sectors is sufficient. I mean, they're all gonna have to work together. And that might be one kind of overarching theme. I mean, years ago we started saying, well, the human face of systems thinking is collaboration. It's people working together across boundaries, really trying to improve some larger systems as opposed to just tinkering away within their existing boundaries. I mean, we all know the limitations of each of these sectors. I mean, we know the limitations of government, tends to be short-term, tends to be reactive, even in those places where it's not, quote, democratic, which practically speaking, tends to mean more reactive, more short-term. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, China actually does have a plan to be, you know, carbon neutral by 2050 or 2060, and they're very serious about it. And obviously they do a lot of planning, so they've got to calibrate it in, 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 in stages. But even, even in those cases, uh, the biggest single problem for the Communist Party, although it's not terribly visible outside of China, is basically people don't do what they tell them to do. We tend to think if they say jump, everybody jumps. It actually isn't the way it really works. <laughs> and they've, they've started setting targets around energy efficiency, oh gosh, 20 years ago, which the, uh, the business sector, including the state-owned enterprises, just ignored and then they try to figure out more ways to have put more and more teeth into them. So everybody has limitations. And if you just think of the major sectors, government, civil society, business, as kind of the three big sectors that shape how the economy works, they all have limitations. You know, government tends to be short-term and reactive. Uh, civil society tends to be very fragmented, focused on very particular equity or environmental issues which are legitimate issues, of course, most of us would agree, yeah, that's really a legitimate issue. But, you know, focusing on them in such piecemeal ways just misses all the deeper sources of the problems. And the environmental uh, movement, likewise, has huge limitations. It tends to be very reactive, uh, fear-based, you know, we're going to go to hell if we don't do this or that. Not very imaginative, not really innovative in the sense that business would use the term. So in any event... And, and the business sector obviously has had to step into the breach 
in, in a lot of ways, and I think has done a fair amount. But of course, we understand, you know, that always going to be beholden to, well, at least the publicly traded ones to the financial markets and even the, the ones that are private have to pay a lot of attention to that and, and, and tend to be um, pretty fragmented in the sense that, I mean, I'm not anti-competition. I think competition is great. Yet, if you want to improve food supply chains, even competitors have to work together because they're all participating in a, in a common system of sourcing, you know, whatever type of food you want to talk about. And you just can't keep doing that effectively. You keep, you keep destroying social capital, that is to say, the health of farming communities and, and ecological capital, as I say, topsoil, water, all the, uh, the natural system inputs to the food system. And those you can't deal with individual companies. I mean, that's been one of the big lessons we've learned. We've done a lot of work in food systems. And, you know, there's now a common term used, which I think is a good one, pre-competitive co collaboration. In other words, even direct competitors have to work together to create healthy market conditions, which in turn can allow them to compete. I so mean, yeah, all the sectors have, have challenges. And, and I, as I say, the, the, real, the real headline of all this is they're all going to have to work together. Excuse me. No, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and in terms of you talked about a, a dyst potentially dystopian future, and I completely hear you. I, it, it feels to me that human nature is, uh, and I'm not a, a sort of misanthrope in any way, but I, I saw a talk of yours on YouTube where you were talking about systems thinking in a digital world and you talked about the internet and you talked about our gadgets mm -hmm. and the fact that they're powered by fossil fuel. Right. And there was almost an audible gasp in the in the audience. It's almost like that, that had never hmm. really crossed people's minds. Do, do, do you think there's a fundamental challenge that we, we, we're all fairly, I wouldn't call it human nature, but we tend to be quite yeah. narrow in our focus and our vision? I think that it's very important to carefully use words here. I, I would really shy away from words like human nature. One, mm. because it's a huge abstraction, and who can say? But what I think is absolutely valid here and very timely is to reflect on how we all live in an age, right? We all are products of a culture. No, no humans ever in history, as far as any of us could understand, have never not lived in a cultural milieu, right? And the one that we've all grown up in is one that tends to reinforce a very short-term fragmented worldview. If we were hunter-gatherers, we would not think the way we think. I'm just trying to illustrate my point here. Yeah. If we were even living in a more traditional farming community and we were very aware that our well-being depended on cycles and weather, tending to our soil nutrients, stewarding our water, and to some degree even working together because we actually all use a lot of the same water, whatever, uh, we could not think the way we think. So what we often call human nature, I would call habit, you know, collective mm -hmm. habits of thinking and acting. And, and that's culture. So uh, I, I would tend to shy away from human nature, but not the basic point that given the way we're conditioned, given the way we're educated, given the way we're continually socialized and reinforced by our present culture, we tend to be very short term. I would say, by and large, highly individualistic. I would say excessively individualistic, failing to recognize how much collective well-being shapes our individual well-being. You know, my, my, it's a little funky example now, but my classic example of this, you know, we, you got to remember when you drive your car, this kind of symbol 
of individual autonomy and freedom. Your life does depend on the hands of thousands of people you've ever met. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right? Absolutely. So even driving our car is actually a much more collective undertaking to be yeah. successful than we realize. So this collective nature of our societies tends to fade into the background. It's not that it's not there. It just isn't very uh, predominant, predominant in our thinking. And therefore, when we think about these big problems and, and, and what we're going to have to do, it often seems impossibly daunting because we immediately confront this foreground awareness of individualism. Um, even in our highly individualistic societies, take anyone you like, you know, South Africa, England, US, you know, highly individualistic societies, we love team sports. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? We yeah, still absolutely. like good music, and most good music is produced by ensembles. So there's still a part of us that really appreciates collectives. So even in the extreme cases, and all I'm trying to point out is that the collective functioning or how we work together always sits in the background. Society couldn't work without it. And when it starts to break down in dramatic ways, as we've seen in the last, I don't know, five years or so in several societies where, you know, civil behavior has become, you know, not no longer in fashion in public, we go, huh, this is weird. Because again, it, it's, it's, it's pointing out that there was a backdrop of, of civil behavior that we kind of took for granted. It wasn't that it wasn't there. It just wasn't that visible to us until all of a sudden it's not there. So, I mean, in the business world, this started to become very evident to us years ago. Uh, one of the most interesting projects, this was 20 years or so ago, um, was work done in a big division of Hewlett Packard. I could say the name now because it was so long ago. Um, and they started a practice they called um, um, collective, let me see, what was the term they used? Yeah, analyzing our networks of collaboration. For the bosses, they call them their knowledge networks. And the long and short of it was really simple. They started off doing some interesting studies of critical technical innovations. And, and then because they had a social network person working with them, they would simply ask people who had to help who in order to solve this problem. And they all became quite uh, familiar with a particular methodology of analyzing around particularly significant a successful innovation practices, the critical actors and where they were. And not surprisingly, they crossed lots of boundaries. They came from many different divisions um, and they actually crossed organizational boundaries. Not surprisingly, you know, lead users can often be critical to innovation process. They involved, they involved lots of customers. Sometimes they involved competitors in more kind of informal arrangements where somebody knew somebody because they'd work together. In any event, this became a really common practice in the division to the point that they were very aware of what they called their knowledge networks. That was the term they used 20 years ago. And it was a beautiful example of people realizing, even though, you know, the culture was an American, primarily American-centric kind of individual culture, in order to be successful, people helped each other. People worked together. Yeah. So that backdrop of the collective, the collective functioning is always there. It's just that in some cultural contexts, we tend to render it highly invisible because we're so obsessed. And of course, consumerism has done a lot with this obsession. We're so obsessed about what I can get and how I'm doing. And nowadays with social media, you know, how many likes do I get? So this reinforcement of the individual has been a, a drumbeat in our culture for a long, long time. But see, this is not human nature. This is culture. 
human nature is always a much more complex mix of the individual and the collective because we do, you know, our biology hasn't changed a lot in, in the last, you know, few thousand years. And, you know, historically, the collective was really important because we wouldn't have survived otherwise. It's interesting because one of the one of the, the things that we find at, at, at EPAM um, as a whole is there's sort of 40, 50 communities that the mm-hmm. idea is is that you you are sharing knowledge and and, yeah. um, and learnings and it's it's one of the things that our people are most positive about and yes. will, it, it makes a huge huge difference. So you're yes. not talking about your classic hard most of you know your hard incentives if you like, but just being part of something that feels connected, right? That's moving you forward collectively. That's if that right. Makes sense. That's absolutely right. No, see, that's so occasionally we, we find ways, and I'll just that's a great example I've said before. In a sense, all that I mean by culture is the way we collectively orient our awareness. When, when you start to become aware of something like that, of course, I don't know the particulars of the example you're giving now, but it certainly resonates with lots of others I've seen. First off, it's usually really meaningful to people because these are their relationships. Secondly, you're showing a connection between something which is inherently meaningful and it's practically useful. That's a very winning combination, right? This really helps us solve critical problems. This really helps us serve customers. And by the way, we really like it. That's a tough combination to beat. And again, it's it's just uh, kind of highlighting the fact that this underlying awareness of the importance of the collective always sits there. And one of our challenges right now is in whatever way, and I think you're giving a great example now, we need to find ways to bring it a little more into the foreground. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting because you, you sort of, there are some, I wouldn't say schools of thought, but you see some opinions out there that have a, you know, when we start talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning, almost that, you know, our problems are too are, are that big, we're going to need mm-hmm. the machines to solve them. Where, where sure. you're your sense of gravity, which I think is, is fascinating, I would agree with, is actually almost, it's not opposed to that, but it's, it's right. actually, it's, it's the human element, isn't it? It's actually that's almost right. tapping into what it is to be human. I think that's um, exactly right. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm kind of, you know, uh, I don't know what the right word is, neutral, maybe a simple word, around the technology. I, mean, so I don't think it's irrelevant. And, you know, it, at the simplest level, these are always tools. The question is not the tool. The question is the tool user. How do we use the tool? You know, do we? And, and then, of course, that shapes what tools we prioritize and what tools we develop. Um, the uh, the example I was giving before, which is a, quite old, you know, it's not a recent one. You know, this is a very technically sophisticated organization. It was actually the biggest division, and far and away the most profitable division of HP for years. The people who make the uh, cartridges. It was their traditional business. They, they're the called yeah, the ink supply yeah. division. Anyhow, um, they use lots of tools to better track their social networks. And of course, they were always solving technical problems. And they were quite a technologically sophisticated group. So no, none of them would have advocated for, we need less technology. <laughs> but what they were really seeing is that given the same technological environment, two different groups or two different organizations were dramatically different in what they accomplished based on their human or social skills. Kind of simple. It's again. It's it, it would be it would be silly to make this about you know big data or human learning or you know um, uh, artificial intelligence or human intelligence. Yes, we need artificial intelligence and human intelligence. But ultimately, unless we imagine a real kind of a fantasy world where machines are running everything, and who knows, 
Uh, short of that, you know, somewhere the humans are in there. And right now the humans yeah. are more of a problem than a help. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, I think we're, we're just one, one final uh, point, because I think I totally agree with you on that, that the systems thinking, and, and you may disagree with this because obviously you're, um, you know, you've been there from the, from the, pretty much the start, but it, it does involve, I think when, when I introduce the concept to people, some, some fairly critical conceptual thinking, it requires imagination, as you've just yeah. said, and it requires, what, what would your advice be to, to making it real for a business? Is it about time investment and, and the ability for an organization to reflect and learn, or is it, it's the one thing you would say an organization, you know, and, and I know once again, it's a big generality, but yeah. where'd your focus be? Well, of course, every situation is a little different. You're talking about what would be influential or effective. It, the context matters. But generally speaking, I always try to kind of demystify the word system. Because that's a bit of a problem we've always had. System is an off-putting word. You know, it tends to sound technical. It tends to sound like it's all about computers or even worse. You know, it's not my fault. It's the stupid system, right? Rules, yeah. regulations, yeah. Yeah. All, all the rigidities of, of our organizational existence, which frustrate us. Um, but I always try to help people start saying, well, wait a second, back to the point I was making before, this is not new territory to us. We grew up in families. We all know what it's like to be part of a healthy family and often a dysfunctional family. We all know the suffering, the pain that can be created by human beings, just the way they interact and the habits they get into that, that are turn out to be very problematic for everybody. So it's not like we don't know this territory. And you can throw away the word system entirely and just talk about we live in webs of interdependence where my well-being depends a lot on yours and we're continually influencing each other. And you, know, you can start at that social level and then gradually as you start to understand the interdependence of our social reality, you can extend it and say, well, obviously this is true of us as a species within larger webs of living systems. You know, We are interdependent with the natural systems around us. So I just think you've always got to, in whatever way works, build up from people's innate, intuitive understanding. Yes, in, 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 in various technical ways, conceptual sophistication really helps, and you can build models of all different sorts, et cetera. But, but I, I think they're, they're kind of like the, the, uh, the extra added element that really helps. The basic element is awakening people's intuitive understanding that we always live in an interdependent, interconnected reality. It's just the way it is. And we know that. Yeah. And as children, it wasn't too daunting to us because it was just kind of self-evident. You know, you had to make friends or you lost your friends or you had all these dynamics of social relationships on the playground. And it's just life. And you either, you know, learn and get better at it or you kind of ignore it. Uh, and and, and it's, it's, not, it's not news. No, but it, but it, it, it is, it's, it's that perspective that's everything, isn't it? Because you do get quite a lot, quite a lot, you know, I'm going to talk in generalities. I've spoke, seen a lot of businesses that almost picture themselves as the, the large mothership, you know, out there on the great ocean forging their own path, whereas actually, you know, and, and not necessarily being part, as you said before, the, the, uh, the wider system of their yeah. suppliers, their competitors, their customers, that's people, right. humans, everything that's else. Right. Yeah. That's right. You know, I mean, all good businesses need good competitors. And usually good business leaders know that. 
You know, that's a good example. You know, the word compete is ironic. If you look at its etymology, Latin root, competere, it means striving or seeking together. <laughs> really? I didn't know that. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> Check out your Oxford dictionary. I should know that. Yeah, it, the calm part is the giveaway, right? The C-O-M part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm embarrassed not to know that. I'm yeah, well, that's because, again, that's culture. We've been enculturated or socialized into a view of competition, which is about the win-lose part, not the together part. You know, the best athletes always train together, and then they go out and compete. It's not an either-or. Competition and collaboration are natural sisters. You know, they go together. And, and that's true in business just as well. You know, the real question is, do you have a healthy balance of competition and collaboration or even better, you say the two types of competition, the striving together and the somebody wins and somebody loses. They're very complimentary. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Peter, that was fascinating. And I I really appreciate you taking the time. Appreciate it greatly. Paul. Thank you, Peter. That was um, really interesting to hear about. EPAM Continuum integrates business, experience, and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we are very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real, because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Peter Senji, you've got a beautiful mind, and it was an honor to have you on the show. Rick Curtis and Paul McCormick, you both had a wonderful debut as interviewers. Our producer, Ken Gordon, keeps the ship upright even in heavy seas. Kit Palalis is our sound engineer, making us sound all sparkly. And I'm your host, Kyle Wing. Until next time, thank you.